So in the book of Jeremiah, in our Old Testaments, God invites the prophet to go down to the house of the potter and to observe the potter. And there, Jeremiah goes down and he sees the potter shaping the clay on the potter's wheel and the pot is marred in the potter's hands and then the potter reforms it into another pot. And then we read this. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation, I warn, repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. And if at another time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be built up and planted, and if it does evil in my sight and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good I had intended to do, do for it. Sometimes, even when God is doing everything God can do, things don't go the way God wants them to go. And God must reshape things. And sometimes that reshaping can be painful and disruptive. And it may even appear to us that God is not for us at all. That God is completely absent. So by the time we get to Genesis chapter 6, we encounter a game-changing story. Probably the most well-known story in Genesis 1 through 11, if not for some people in the entire Old Testament. Noah and the ark. Noah and the ark, and of course the accompanying flood, are the summit of these first 11 chapters of our Old Testament. Everything that came before leads up to it, and everything that comes after flows out of it. This account of Noah and the ark in the flood changes things. One pastor I heard put it this way. He said, it's kind of like when you find out that Darth Vader is Luke Skywalker's father at the end of The Return of the Jedi. Everything you saw before now changes, and everything that happens after flows forward from that. That's the kind of moment we find ourselves in right now in Genesis chapter 6, and the next three chapters after that. The story of the wickedness on the earth, the call of Noah, the flood, its aftermath, and all of these things are a watershed event. Pun intended. Metaphorically, a watershed is a crucial dividing line. It profoundly separates things before from the things that come after. It changes everything. Since Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, things have been spiraling downward in terms of sin and violence and destruction. In chapter 6, things seem to reach a crescendo to mix my metaphors a bit. Chapter 6, 1 through 3. When human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. These three verses are some of the trickiest verses in all of the Old Testament. Why are they here? What are they, what are they trying to tell us? We're given a picture again of the spread of sin and its consequences. World population is growing, and with it the potential for wickedness and sin. And we have this strange bit about the sons of God marrying and having children with the daughters of men. Who are these people? What are they? There are two basic interpretations that are most plausible. First, the sons of God are angelic beings. 
The daughters of men are human women. This would mean that not only has all of creation been affected by sin, but now even angels can sin. The second interpretation is that the sons of God were rulers. Rulers who were known often in the ancient world as sons of God, being divine, or at least least partly divine. And if so, what was wrong with them taking wives from the villages and marrying them? Well, some commentators have concluded that the rulers were actually exercising what was known as the right of the first night, an ancient fertility rite practiced by rulers and kings. These sons of God had the right to spend the first night with any bride uh, in any marriage among their subjects. If this is the case, saying they took them as wives would be a, a euphemism. It's also possible there's an abuse of power going on where kings and rulers are looking to their subjects and taking as many women as they want in their harems. It's an abuse of power. They, they see women whom they find beautiful. More literally, they take them. They take them as their wives. The international version softens it. They married any of them they chose. It sounds so romantic. If this is the case. They take them. In this view, sin and injustice become systemic and institutionalized. Both of these interpretations describe the ongoing spiraling out of control effects of sin. What began in the garden with a forbidden piece of fruit is now full-blown in its effects throughout the world, and depending on which interpretation we choose, sin corrupts even the cosmos. Even the cosmos. So there are a couple of those hyperlinks we talk about sometimes here, and they take us back if we click on them to Genesis 3. And there, when the serpent tempts Eve to eat of the forbidden fruit, we were told in verse 6 that she saw that the fruit was pleasing to the eye, or beautiful, and she took it. Here in Genesis 6, these sons of God see that the women are beautiful, pleasing to the eye, and they take them. The sin and selfishness that were at work in the garden are at work ten generations later, and, of course, they are still at work today. We see something, we desire it, and we take it. The writer goes on to describe the offspring of these unions. They are the Nephilim. Verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, the men of renown. No idea what they are. Nobody does. We're not told much more than that, to be honest. I do remember an uh, an episode of the X-Files where uh, the Nephilim were featured, but... I guarantee you that is not where you should find out what this. (laughs) And what they were is not really the point. That doesn't matter. What matters is that what these sons of God did with the women ran against God's commands, God's design. This, the way it's laid out in the narrative, is the inciting incident that gets the ball rolling toward the story of Noah and the ark and the flood. And so we read in verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. First, let's let's notice the description of humanity. Every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Maybe that's a bit of hyperbole, but even if it is, it says something. And when I, I don't know about you, but when I look around today, I don't think I would ever say that every 
inclination of the human heart is only evil all the time. I don't think it's a stretch to say that apparently, as bad as we may sometimes think things are today, apparently they were worse then. They were worse then. The story that follows bears strong similarities to other ancient accounts of a flood and even of a ship being built to carry some humans and animals to safety. But the focus in Genesis and the Genesis account is different. In, in one of the other accounts, for example, the gods want to get rid of human beings because they are literally too noisy. Seriously. But again, Genesis has some very important differences. So for instance, let's consider what this verse says about God. Verse 6, The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. These words that describe God's mind and heart may be surprising for some of us. In the West, we have been taught to see God as unchangeable, as immutable. And that is true. God's character is always loving, always just, always merciful, to say the least. But the ancient Hebrews, who wrote these scriptures, thought and believed that God had some very human characteristics. God grieves, God regrets, God even changes God's own mind. After all, how can God regret without a change of mind? As if to say, I thought it was a good idea when I made human beings, but now I'm kind of regretting it. Something has got, caused God pain and grief to the point that God had a change of mind. God has created all there is out of compassion and goodness and love, but now God's creation has rebelled to a point beyond our comprehension. To the point that it caused God pain. God now regrets having made humankind at all. There's another word. Uh, that use, is used to describe God here that we don't need to miss. God's heart was deeply troubled. Deeply troubled. <clears throat> More literally, God was grieved. God was grieved. Sin and, and corruption and evil have now reached the point that God must act. It appears that things had gotten to the point that even God could not turn them back around. No amount of coaxing or persuasion would have done the trick. It, was all, it had all gone too far. Again, beyond comprehension here. What is the nature of this wickedness that has gone too far? In verse 5, we're told that God saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become, but it isn't until verse 11, which you did not hear read earlier, that we get a little bit more detail. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. It was full of violence. What is the nature of the sin and the corruption on the earth? When God took action, it was violence. The Hebrew word used here is Hamas. Violence, wrong, cruelty, injustice. Sometimes when we hear that God is upset with sin, we think of personal sins. We think of sexual sins. We think of impurity, drunkenness, gossip, cheating on your taxes, whatever. That's what we think of. But here, the only word Genesis 6 uses to describe the sin that God could no longer stomach is Hamas. Violence, wrong, cruelty, and injustice. The harm that people do to one another. 
few weeks ago, I shared with you that the most dangerous animal on the planet for human beings is the mosquito. Kills about a million people every year. Second place, the most dangerous animal to human beings on the earth is other human beings. We murder, this isn't accidental, this is murder, we murder 475,000 other human beings a year. This is what causes God to do what God does in Genesis chapter 6, 7, 8, 9. And today, from our privilege and safety, we might look at the story of the flood and we might say, oh man, God just gave up on us. God abandoned humanity. But I think the opposite is true. God did not abandon creation. God saved it. God did not abandon creation. God saved it. True abandonment would be for God to do nothing. To be unmoved, to do nothing, to choose not to act in the face of the evil, the sin, and the violence, and the destruction, and the harm that human beings do to one another, that would be abandonment. But the ark and the flood were actually about engagement. God did something. And while we may initially think we see God's anger and wrath at work as the motivating factor in Genesis 6, it is not. It is clear from the passage it is not. God is not motivated to act because of righteous indignation or anger over our sin. No, God is motivated to act out of grief and sorrow and regret. To say that God was grieved or that God regretted creating humankind does not mean that God made some cataclysmic mistake when he created human beings on the sixth day of creation. It means that things didn't turn out the way God had planned and designed, and this causes him pain. You see, God, in his infinite wisdom, God gave us human beings the ability to disobey, the ability to cause God pain, to disappoint God, to hurt God, to live in ways that are contrary to God's design, contrary to what is best for us and for all of creation, because that's what love does. You have a child, you have no control. <clears throat> you have no control. <clears throat> <clears throat> they already know that. Um, you have no control on how that child's going to turn out, whether that child's going to hurt you or not. They, they have the power to do that because that's what love does. Love is vulnerable. Love takes risks. And while God has been intervening and persuading and trying to move things along in the right direction, all along, in the end, though grieved and in pain, God saw that something more drastic was Necessary because apparently sometimes things can get so bad that all that is left to do is to start over. To reset things, to reform, to reshape the clay on the potter's wheel. And that reforming, that reshaping can be very painful. It can be difficult to take. It can be difficult to trust God in the midst of it. In the book of Job, after Job has experienced so much pain and suffering, his three friends call it God's judgment. 
But Job knows he is innocent, that he's done nothing to deserve this suffering. And then, in a beautiful response to his three accusers, Job says that while they want to smear him with lies, he trusts God. Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. The old King James Version says, yet will I trust him. In the end, we too can trust and put our hope in God, for the flood is an act of love and divine mercy, though it may not always seem like it. For we do not yet have the whole picture. God did not abandon creation. God saved it. I don't think it's too much to say that a part of God's grief, God's regret, is the fact that now he has decided that he must take this drastic action. In the New Testament, in 2 Peter 3, verse 9, we are told that, that God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Just a few verses before that, one of the examples Peter names is the flood that we're about to hear about in Genesis 6. The God whose will it is that no one perish must now cause many, many to perish. In other words, to do what God did was to do what God never wanted to do. Can you imagine the pain that must have caused God? None of us likes to be put in a situation, a position that causes us to do something that is painful though necessary. Perhaps the same is true of God. God has kicked humankind out of the garden. God has pushed Cain and his descendants further and further to the east, away from the garden. God has started a new line through Seth to try and make it all work again for the good, but now God has concluded there is nothing left to do but to perform a reboot on creation, to wipe the hard drive and reinstall the program. The program has been corrupted and no other fix is possible. A couple of years ago, the dogs in our household and a few other contributing factors caused Kim and I to have to take some drastic action on our lawn in the backyard. I wanted to just sow more seeds and fertilize and give it a chance. No, Kim did not want to do that. She wanted to rip it all up and start over. Kim won. So, I don't know how many piles of dirt there are there, but I may have moved two or three of those. She moved all the rest. I know, I'm a terrible human being. (laughs) She did most of the work. In case you don't believe me. That's my favorite one. And now you're saying to yourself, wait a minute. You were taking pictures? Yes, I was taking pictures. In fact, I had to take a selfie just to prove I did something. And now our backyard is actually green and lush, and it's been cleansed. It's been renewed, and it's flourishing. By the time we get to Genesis 6, humankind must be renewed. Creation must be renewed. The ground must be cleansed. Sin has so corrupted everything. It has so damaged God's good creation that the only thing that can be done is drastic and radical and painful and costly surgery. And so in verse 7 we read, 
So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. You can hear, you can hear in this the language of creation reversed. This is the uncreation of creation. The way Genesis talks about this. And that word translated as wipe from or in other places blot out means to cleanse. As it does in Psalm 51 verses 2 and 9. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Blot out all my iniquity. Verse 9. God's intention is to cleanse the world from the violence that has come upon it. To wipe away, to blot out that which has corrupted God's good creation. So that what is good may flourish and God's purposes may prevail. Yes. The violence, the corruption, the disobedience have led to this moment And it's going to be terrible. It's going to be terrible. But, verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah. There is violence and there is sin. There is grief. There is regret. There is sorrow. There is a plan to cleanse the land in a cataclysmic flood where God will do what God does not want to do. And it all looks dark and bleak and foreboding, because it is. But Noah. But Noah. Noah was introduced to us back in Genesis 5, 29, uh, where Lamech, his father, said of him, He will comfort us in the labor and painful toil of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. You may remember, Noah's name means rest. Rest. And here we get to the comfort and the rest promised in Genesis 5. Now truly, truly, I, I don't imagine that any of the people whose names were not on the passenger manifest for the ark that day felt any comfort and rest at all. When the waters came upon the land, it was flooded. But to humanity... To humanity made in God's image, to the overarching plan of God and God's love for creation, to the covenant that God made with Adam and Eve, the words of Genesis 6, verse 8, are comfort. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We're going to talk more about this in the coming weeks. But for today, it's time to ask that question that we have been asking all along. How, how does all of this lead us to Jesus? Jesus, like God, grieves over our sin and rebellion and the impact it has on other human beings. In Matthew 21, Jesus famously cleanses the temple, turns over the tables and drives the money changers out of the temple. And then the religious leaders come to attack and criticize him. In Matthew 23, 13, however, Jesus then takes over the conversation and he talks for like two chapters and he begins to pronounce on these religious leaders seven woes. Seven woes, and the word translated woe is in the Greek a primary exclamation of grief. Not anger, grief. And yes, Jesus says some very harsh things to those religious leaders, but it is all motivated by his grief over what their hypocrisy and their spiritual blindness are doing to other human beings. Jesus grieves over these religious leaders who keep people out of God's kingdom. Jesus grieves over these religious leaders who burden them with legalism and refuse to do justice and to show mercy to those people who are in need. 
And then right at the end of the chapter, Jesus turns his attention toward all of Jerusalem, where his grief becomes a little more evident. Matthew 23, verses 37 to 38. Jerusalem, Jesus is speaking. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. Jesus grieves, as does his Father God, what violence and corruption have done to human beings and to creation. And we are invited to grieve along with him. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 12, 15, that we are to rejoice with those who rejoice and we are to mourn with those who mourn. But neither Paul nor Jesus stop there. If God has promised rest and comfort through Noah, these things come to us in the most powerful way in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus who is in the line of Noah. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians Chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. And then in Matthew 11, Jesus comes to us, speaking both to his disciples and to the curious crowds standing around. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Or as the message translation puts it, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Amid violent times and grief, amid corruption, sin, and evil, comfort and rest come to us in and through Jesus Christ. Jesus and the presence of God's Spirit within us have the power and the will to comfort us and to give us rest. Likewise, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has the power to remake us, to take the marred lump of clay on the potter's wheel and to reshape it, to refashion it into something good and beautiful and true. I have seen this at work in my own life, especially over the last two years or so, and I see it at work in ECC today. And I think we all know that over the last two years or so, there's been very little that was fun and painless. And yet, God is at work. God is making a way even when we don't see it. All of us as individuals, as families, as congregations can be marred at times by violence and sin, that done to us or that we do. All of us can look at life and think that God is against us, but that is not true, friends. God is with us. Emmanuel, God is with us. 
If you are suffering from broken relationships, sorrow, injustice, or violence done to you, if you are suffering from hardship or pain or loss or grief, or from life in a fallen world, or from the consequences of your own sin, it is okay to be upset. It is okay to be angry, even at God. It is okay to grieve. God did and still does. It is also okay to cry out to God. To cry out to God for rest. To cry out to God for comfort. To cry out to God for peace and for healing. For a stronger than usual awareness of God's presence because God is present always. It is alright to cling to the hope even if it's just by a fingernail. To cling to the hope that God is always at work for your good, even if you do not always see it or can't even believe it. I invite you to join with me in a moment of silent prayer, and then I'm going to close that prayer. Let us take time in this silence to lift our sorrows, our concerns, or the concerns we have for other people, loved ones and so forth, or somewhere in the world. Let us lift our sorrows up to God. Let us lift our pain, our frustration, our anger up to God. Let us ask for God to give us the comfort and the rest we need. Would you join me in a moment of silence, then I'll lead us in prayer. God, you know the hearts and the circumstances, the inner lives and the thoughts of every person in this room, of every person online, of anyone who will ever hear my voice. You know the pain we have suffered and are suffering. You know the anxiety and the crippling fear. You know the anger. You know the depth of the sin that has been done against us and the depth of the sin we have done ourselves. We lift these things to you, God. I pray for each person who has prayed and lifted these things to you, Lord. I pray that they would know before the day is out that they would get some glimmer, some strong sense that you are there, that you are at work, that you have not abandoned them, and that you have only good planned for them. Well, Lord, we ask all of this in this strong and powerful and beautiful name of Jesus, the one who has indeed made a way for us to know the comfort and rest we so desperately need and want. Meet us, I pray, Lord God, and be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name.